But I wanted to, you know, I prepared a message, so I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm doing this message. Uh, because uh, ironically, as I went through this note, uh, ironically, when I went through the notes again, I realized this is actually a great introduction to this year. Uh, this year, the title for this coming year is The Gospel from End to Beginning. So for the entire year, we're going to be going through the gospel message. Um, and not just the four gospels. The gospel's not just the first four books of the New Testament. The gospel is the entire Bible. And so we're going to be spending time in that, and we're going to end the year with the birth of Christ. Where we're going to be kind of working our way backwards through the gospels. So it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And as, we're t- as, I'm, as I'm writing this message uh, a couple of weeks ago, Looking over it again the next the last couple of days, I realized this is just a great way to start this, you know, uh, you know, totally by accident, because, you know, God doesn't plan anything. He just, you know, shoots from the hip, right? Um, but every year, the conversation of Christmas inevitably comes around to the birth of Christ, as it should. Um, but the part of the conversation that actually gets my attention is not the baby in the manger. It's not the angels and the shepherds. Um, what gets my attention is the idea of the word made flesh. You just stopped and thought, and, and thought about that, the word made flesh. We, we concentrate on the baby and we can get lost in the commercialism and everything. But the, part, the scriptural part of Christmas that always gets me each year is the word made flesh. And I, I, I think that ends up getting overlooked a lot. As to, I mean, we, we can talk about the, the birth of our Savior and everything, but there's this concept of the word made flesh. And it's always fascinating because you think about this, it's easy to look at Jesus and see him as the man who died on the cross for my sins, which that's true, right? He's the man who died on the cross for my sins. But that was not all he was. He was and is and will be so much more than that. The Bible says that he was the word of God. And we know that the word of God was, is, and will always be. Jesus was, is, and will always be. You think about this. The beginning of our Bible, the very first phrase in our Bible is actually a Hebrew word called Bereshit, and it means in the beginning. More appropriately, it should be translated Genesis. But most people don't understand what the word Genesis means. Genesis means the start of all things. So the the name of the first book of our Bible is actually also the first word in that book, Genesis, the beginning. And it's a little mind-bending to think about, but before the words that were spoken that created the universe that we live in and everything in it, there was nothing here. There was, there was nothing. It wasn't even a void. See, a void is a space with nothing in it. It was nothing. No existence. But just because our here didn't exist does not mean that God's there did not exist. Because it did. Before we were, he was. And where he is still existed. God was still there at that time. Now you think about this. Jesus was there with him before all. John says it like this. In the beginning, the word already existed. 
The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Now all that he is Jesus. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. Again, that's Jesus. The word, Jesus, gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Think about this. There was a time where the man Jesus, the the human physical man Jesus did not exist. But there was never a time when the word did not exist. There was a period of time in our existence when the physical man Jesus who died on the cross did not exist, but there was never a time where Jesus did not exist. That'll, that'll, That'll bend your brain a little bit. And his love for us has always been and will always be. See, it's through Jesus that we were created. And it was the word that we denied. And it was the word made flesh that made a way back for us. It all revolves around Jesus. All of it. While the love of God has and uh, has for us is as profound as it is limitless, the same cannot be said for our love towards him, can it? Jesus was the word spoken to bring us into existence, and our refusal to believe that word led us to fall from grace and the death of our connection to the spirit of our creator. The word brought us in. The word gave us guidelines. We broke the guidelines, and now here we are. Our sin separated us from our creator, but it did not separate us from the love of our creator. When we sinned, we were separated from God, but God did not give up. He did not just say, you know, I'll just go try another planet. I got lots of planets. I'll just, I'm just going to try this again. I'll come back in a million years and see what these people have done. So that's not what God did. I like to think of it this way. The word that gave us life had no intentions of being silent. The word that gave us life had no intentions of being silent. And so a promise was made, a plan was put in place. God not only had a plan to redeem his lost creation, but that plan would also center around the very thing that brought that creation into being and the very thing that that creation violated, his word. And it would come in a couple different ways. First, it would involve his word on the page. He would bring his word back to us because he could no longer be with us face to face because we were separated. And then it would turn into his word in the flesh. But the plan would begin on the page. I find it very unfortunate how so many Christians and so many churches have moved away from the authority of the word on the page. They see this as an outdated collection of stories meant to make us good people. But they forget that this is actually the living, breathing word of God. This is Jesus in print. It's everything God wants us to know, literally at our fingertips. It's where his promise of redemption began, on the page. It is God's word to man, not man's word about God. Got to get that right in our mind. 
It brings us the understanding of the character and nature of God. It teaches us about sin and evil, about right and wrong. It shows us the cost of sin and the penalty awaiting those who refuse to seek and find forgiveness. It also shows us the plan of God revealed through the ages, through his prophets, through his priests. It shows us the character and nature of God through the struggles of his chosen people, Israel. Century by century, pieces of the plan were given, but never all at once. Isn't that frustrating? You got to read the whole thing to get the plan. Why didn't God just tell us what was going on all at once? Why couldn't he have just given us the detailed plan? Hey, I'm going to redeem you at such and such an hour on such and such a day. This is when it's going to happen. This is when your redemption can, can, can draw near. This is when all of a sudden man is going to be right with us. And I think the reason he didn't do it because we would wait until just before to get right. If you knew when Jesus was coming back the, for the final time, We wouldn't be the people we are. We'd be like, oh, I've got like, I don't know how long I have. <laughs> I think that's the point. Because we're broken people. We like to try to see what I can, we can get away with. And I think this is why scripture tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Fall in line with the word of God and do so understanding that he may come back at any moment. And when he comes back, the opportunity ends. But he gives us this plan, and he spells out this plan in his word, in the word on the page. The word that spoke us into existence gave us a collection of his, of his, his promises, wrote them down to be handed to generation to generation so that we would know. The first sign to watch out for was a birth goes, all right, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah seven fourteen. It's a fitting way to start the promise, isn't it? Because it was a spiritual death that brought us, that separated us from God. And it would be a birth conceived by the spirit that would begin the process to bring us back to God. Isn't that fitting? Isn't it interesting how God balances those scales? Spirit to spirit. But that's not all he told us. We're pretty thick people. We don't, we don't just, you know, if God just gave us one hint, we wouldn't be good with it. He also gave us an idea of where we should look. Okay, the virgin will conceive. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be here in this town. And the funny thing is, no one believed him. No one believed the word. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, that word, <laughs> sorry, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins, now listen to, this is the, the, the best part, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. A ruler whose origins are from the distant past will come from you. The Messiah will be born of a virgin and will be born in Bethlehem. If this tells us anything, it reminds us that God is not looking for earthly glory. If he wanted earthly glory, he would have been born in the big town, in the big city where there would have been a parade. It would have been announced. Everyone would have known. 
He could have called people to attention. It's happening now. And then Jesus would have been raised in wealth with the best teachers and the best homes and the best of everything. God has no need for our praise. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need, listen to this. He doesn't need us to love him, but he desires our love. But it needs to be from us. So he sent the Messiah to an insignificant city in an insignificant region to be born in the quiet of the night. No fanfare. Simple. Raised in humility. It's interesting that God would bring his promise to, into, into being in such a humble way. It helps me understand why we should be so willing to take the gospel to insignificant places, to insignificant people, to small groups that we would never think, you know, it's, they're not worth my time. When I went to Tanzania, the time I spent teaching there was with 24 students. That was a very expensive trip to go over and spend time teaching 24 pastors who were going to be able to take that information to their people who would then take it out and continue to take it out. It was worth every penny. So he tells us how the Savior will be born. He tells us where the Savior will be born. He even tells us when. Every generation thinks or they've convinced themselves that they are the generation that are going to see the fulfillment of the promise. I could, I could, ever since I've been a Christian, I, I can remember people after people after people. We are the ones who are going to see Jesus come back. I hope so, but you know how many people have been saying that? Since the first century. It's been like 2,000 years. They're all wrong. Chances are we're wrong. I hope not, but I don't want to get caught up in that. But God gives us a timeline in his word on the page. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse, 27, verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined for, uh, for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. Now listen to this, to make an end of sin to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 490 years is what that comes out to. Now the prophecy goes on to the beginning, uh, and this this time frame will start at the the beginning of the call to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, 483 years from that point was when Jesus started his ministry. Not when he was born, when he started his ministry. Right on time. You think about that. God is punctual. Isn't that amazing? I didn't think he had a watch. He lives outside of time, but he's always on time. Now, it may not have been spelled out very easily for everyone to understand, but it was there. And one of the things that this teaches me is that prophecy is always best understood in a rearview mirror. We want to try to figure prophecy out in a forward-thinking manner so many times. I've known so many people, I have figured out the end times. I'm like, yeah. no, you haven't. Because the Bible says you can't. 
You, 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 you just can't. At some point, we're all going to be wrong. I talk about this every now and then. You remember the book, 88 reasons why, uh, 85 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1985? And then there was 86 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1986. Eventually, there was 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988. You remember all the people who were told that Jesus was riding the tail of the Hale-Bopp comet? And so they cleaned out their 401ks and their retirements and took these vacations, ran up all their credit cards, and they were literally, literally out in the field while the comp was going by and like, take me now, Jesus, before my creditors show up. There were actually billboards around the country by atheist groups. Now, I don't, I'm not promoting it, but I did think it was pretty funny. And basically, they, taught, they, they stated the prophecy that was there, and underneath it, they said, well, that was awkward. Because it was, because we think we figured this stuff out. We can't. Prophecy is always best viewed in the rearview mirror. We see God do something, and then we turn around and we go, oh my gosh. He told us that this was going to happen. He promised us this was going to be. And it's, it's, it's basically there so that we understand the sovereignty of God, and we can't get all hyped up on the wisdom of ourselves. See, if we could figure out prophecy before it happened, we would be elevating ourselves, our own understanding, our ability to interpret, look how amazing I am. God says, you're actually not that amazing. He says that to me a lot. I can't reach the top shelf at Walmart. I am not that amazing. I did have something really cool happen the other day. We were in the store, and there was this, this lady, and she was looking up, and she was trying to get fluff. It was, you know, marshmallow. And, and so she, she's, she's there, and she's, she's kind of kind of doing, doing one of these things, and she's looking at the shelf, and she's like, no way, I'm, that's going to buckle like crazy. And, and I looked, and I was like, I am slightly taller than her. <laughs> and I was able to do something I don't think I've ever done. I was like, can I reach that for you, ma'am? And then I did this. <laughs> it was great. I've always wondered what Keith's life is like. <laughs> we're, just not that, we're just not that impressive, but when we can see the hand of God through history looking back, boy, does that give us peace and comfort and understanding. But it also helps us to, to realize something. I hear this a lot. We, we wonder why God didn't just tell people exactly when this was going to happen. He gave us all the rest of the details. Why not tell us exactly when this happened? Why did God wait 490 years? Why did the people in Daniel's time had to wait 490 years for a timeless God to come into being? Why can't this happen now? Why, did, why can't this happen when we need it to happen and when you step back, that actually leads into a couple of other thoughts, doesn't it? Why doesn't God do what I need him to do now? Why doesn't God operate on my timetable? Have these thoughts ever come into your mind? I've asked, but I'm not healed yet. I've asked, but I don't have enough provision yet. I've asked, to know when Christ is going to be returning, but I haven't heard anything yet. Why is God waiting? Why is God letting the world get so bad? Why is God fill in the blank? Why is God not doing what I need him to do when I need him to do it? And the answer is extremely difficult and ridiculously simple all at the same time. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways 
uh, 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 excuse me, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying, it's not happening in the way you think it should happen because the way you think it should happen is wrong. Here's what the timeless, inerrant, eternal God says to us. Let me handle it. That's where faith comes in. Our role is not to dictate to God how things should happen. Our role is to trust, especially when we don't understand. Can you imagine the nation of Israel for a couple thousand years wondering when this Messiah that's been promised is going to show up? Going from glory to captivity, back to glory to captivity. Failure, success, failure, success. When is this going to happen? When is this promise going to show up? You know what? If this is how God runs his universe, I don't even want to be part of it. But God says, let me handle it. My schedule, my creation, trust me. Our faith is made real when we believe and trust in the truth of God, regardless of the circumstances. Life is hard. God is good. Things are difficult. God is good. I have no money. God is good. Make better choices, <laughs> right? But you know where all of these truths are found? All of these truths are found in a very interesting place, on the word in, in, in the word on the page. All of the truths that we just talked about are found on the page. They're given to us by the word of God. The word of God made physical so that we could carry it and hand it down from generation to generation so that we can read it and understand it until the day of fulfillment would come. But what happens to people when that day of fulfillment comes? What happened to the people during the first century when the day of fulfillment showed up? They had the word of God. They had the Old Testament writings for Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they had been taught it, they understood it, at least they thought they did. They knew where, they knew how, and they knew when. And when the day of fulfillment shows up, what happens? It's very interesting. The three wise guys come to Herod, and they talk about this idea that the, uh, the, the promised king of the Jews has shown up. Do you know where he is? They're probably thinking that he should be just as excited as they are. Not the case. Herod's not, Herod's not excited about this one. See, because the prophecy of the Messiah would be well known to anyone who knew anything about the Jewish nation. This was a king, and as far as the Jews were concerned, he was a king who was going to come with a military victory. He was going to conquer our enemies. He was going to slaughter our foe. He was going to make us rulers of the world. Woohoo! And now here's Herod, the one running the area, hearing, hey, that guy who's supposed to, like, wipe out all the armies that are, that, are, that are against the Jews, he just got born. Aren't you happy? <laughs> no. Herod knew that whoever this child was, he was a threat to his control, and he was a threat to peace in the region. He was a threat that needed to be eliminated. And scripture tells us that Herod ordered the killing of all the children two years and younger. 
That's how long it took from the birth of Christ, potentially, to the time where the wise men actually found Herod. Jesus was about two years old. They didn't stroll up to Jesus while he was in the manger. Boy, right on time. Got the kid all cleaned up and swaddled, we're good. No, Jesus was about two years old. I wonder if he was terrible twos. Or was he like terrific twos? You know, did Jesus ever throw a fit? You know, was Mary just like, if you don't eat this, I'm I'm just going to. You got to wonder, right? Did Jesus ever get spanked as a child? I don't know. Would Joseph have dared? I can't discipline God. (laughs) It's just crazy stuff. But, you know, Herod wasn't the only one who was, uh, who was around at that particular point in time. Eight days after Jesus was born, there was a man named Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, 25 and 32, it reads like this. Ooh, where did, I wonder what just happened to me. There we go. Ah. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was, uh, was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord, uh, the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, which would be circumcised on the eighth day, he took him up uh, in his arms and blessed uh, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples. A light bringing revelation to the, uh, to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. We don't know much about Simeon. And I would love to know what softened the heart of God to him so much that God gave him a blessing of that magnitude. God revealed the Savior to him. He wasn't a man of stature. He wasn't a man of money. He didn't have means. He didn't have influence. He didn't have a voice in the public. He was just a devout believer that God chose to reveal the Savior to him. You got to wonder how he spent his life. What he was asking God for. But somehow he knew that before he left this life for the next, he would see the Messiah. And he knew that the generation after him would be the generation of the Messiah. For Simeon, this child was God's promise and man's salvation. This child is what would give him peace as he left this world for the next. That's an amazing thing. It makes me wonder, if I spend my life pursuing God, not pursuing information, just pursuing God, what will God bless me with? What will God grant to me in that process? You know, of course, you got Mary and Joseph. Luke one twenty six through 33 says, Now in the sixth month, the, uh, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee and, uh, um, uh, named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. And she said, Ah! 
I imagine that's kind of what happens. Angel shows up to you. She's just not going to be like, hi. Said, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among, among women. But when he saw him, she was troubled <laughs> at his saying uh, and considered what manner of greeting was this. <laughs> that's basically her going, I'm sorry, what? So then the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Thank you. That was them moving the slide for me because I didn't do it myself. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, later, that angel also visited Joseph so Joseph wouldn't kick her to the curb when he found out that she was pregnant because he hadn't been with her yet. What would have normally been a source of severe social embarrassment for their families turned out to be an amazing blessing from the Lord for both of them. Isn't that interesting? When God brings you something and you're worried how other people will see it, it may actually be something that will change the world if we just have faith in it, if it's truly from God. To Mary and Joseph, this child was the fulfillment of a promise to the people of Israel, but not in a way any one of them would have ever expected. This was nothing that any of the teachers or the priests ever put out. No one believed that it was going to happen this way. Which is probably why Mary was like, I, I don't understand. That's not what I was taught in Sunday school. We were told exactly how Jesus was going to show up. And I, I, I advise you to go back to God and ask him to submit himself to the way we were taught. And Gabriel said, sure, no problem. By the way, you're pregnant. There are all kinds of people who were connected with this event. Herod, Simeon, Mary and Joseph. But there's one that we don't consider very often, and that's Gabriel. We know what happened here when Gabriel showed up. But have you ever stopped and wondered what was happening in the spirit world, what was happening there when Gabriel was sent? We focus on the physical world, and we know about the shepherds that got to see the heavenly host singing out the praises of God on the night of the birth, but what about before that? There was nine months between Gabriel being sent and that night. The angels of God, think about this, were there in the beginning when the word was spoken and creation came to be. Gabriel was there when nothing became something. And life was given to man. He was there when God breathed his spirit into the nostrils of created man. And man drew his first breath. He heard mankind's first. (gasps) He was there. He could see God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. He could see all of that. He was there when God found out what happened. He was there when the Spirit of God that had connected creator and creation was severed by our sin. He could see the effect it had on God. He could see 
that, that God noticing what just happened. They were there. He got to see and experience all of it. They were there every step of the way when God revealed himself and his plan through the prophets and his written word. They watched human history unfold, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And after almost 4,000 years, at some point, God called Gabriel and gave him a mission. I'm wondering what that conversation was like. Hey, Gabe, he calls him Gabe. I, I don't know what he calls him. Probably Gabriel. <laughs> Says, now's the time. Go to Nazareth, to the town of Bethlehem, or to, you know, to Galilee. Find Mary, and this is what I want you to tell her. We're never really told much about the angels, probably for good reason. But I have to wonder what Gabriel was thinking when God sent him on that mission. Part of me wonders if that's what prompted the angels who knew God wanted to keep this quiet to find a couple of shepherds out in the middle of nowhere that no one was going to believe anyway and start singing to them. The word on the page is now finally the word made flesh. All heaven rejoiced when this happened. The word that spoke creation into being, the word that promised to redeem that creation, put itself on the page and is now walking in human flesh. I wonder what heaven will be like when Jesus comes back the next time. See, to Herod, this moment was a threat that needed to be eliminated. To Simeon, this moment was a gift of peace. To Mary and Joseph, this moment was the fulfillment of a prophecy in a way that they would have never believed if it hadn't happened to them. But to Gabriel and to the rest of heaven, this child was Lord. It was the Lord that, that spoke everything into existence, and it was their Lord who just stepped out of the eternal heaven and into the fragile, temporary, limited body of a baby boy. God could have stepped out of eternity into the body of a male, of, a, of an adult male. He could have done it. He can do whatever he wants, but that's not what he chose to do. He chose to step out of eternity into the body of a baby. To go through the process that all humanity goes through. So that when he gets to the cross, he can say, I know what your life is like. I know the hardships you have to go through. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be cold. I know what it's like to fall and skin my knee. I know what it's like. I've been there. I've done that. I went through all of it. I'm still here. He's still here for us. This child to heaven was a fulfillment of the other side of the promise. This child was the word of creation, turned the word on the page, and finally the word made flesh. And this was a moment that was 4,000 years in the making. That the promise of what was lost would be redeemed. What was lost would be redeemed. But see, this is a difficult thing about redemption, isn't there? Redemption has a price. 
To get something back, you have to pay the price. As humans, we can't even comprehend the value of what we lost. We have no concept of what it means to be fully connected with God, to be able to see him face to face. We don't know what that's like, but God does. And through the word on the page, he gave us an outline of what that cost would be. Knowing full well that we would never be able to pay it. We would never be able to pay that cost. And the word in the beginning that became the word on the page, that became the word made flesh, also became that very word that took our penalty on the cross to pay our debt, to redeem us. The very thing we violated became the very thing that saved us. We refused to believe the word, and that's what separated us from God. Now, when we choose to believe the word, it's what connects us to God. Isn't that amazing? God always balances the scales. Always. But he asks us for one simple thing. And for a lot of people, honestly, it's just too much. That we believe and follow. That's it. That we believe and that we follow. See, because you can believe and not follow. And what that means is you know the truth, but you don't have the truth. You have head knowledge, not heart knowledge. You might be a good person who's interested in Bible trivia, but you're not a Christian. The Christians are the ones who believe and follow. They're called disciples. That's all he asks us to do. Just believe in this. The Word made flesh. This is why when I, when I, when in the beginning when I said Christmas always, uh, Christmas always makes me think about the Word made flesh. The gift that we could never afford, that was given freely. The word that spoke us into creation was the word that was given to the, put on the page that made us a promise that one day it would be the word made flesh and that word made, made flesh died on the cross for me. That baby became a man. He didn't stay a baby. He became everything I needed to find entrance into heaven, to find forgiveness of sin, redemption of my pathetic lost soul. And all he wants us to do is believe and follow. As we go into this year, we're starting a new year. And I've talked to quite a few people over the course of the last, of the last few months, over the course of the last year. And I would, I would ask you, are you happy with what you've been and who, who you've been over the last year? And there's been a lot of things that have changed in the church, especially since covid it's been, it's been difficult for a lot of people. It, 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 it wasn't just a hiccup, a, wor- a worldwide hiccup, was it? It wasn't just a speed bump. It was, it, was, it was like a NASCAR accident. You know, you'd rather be the one watching it than the one involved. But it, it involved all of us, and it, it, it screwed so many things up. Our connection, our, our, our connection to community, our connection to church, our connection to faith. Where there's still a lot of people who are still scared to come back to church. Because they might get sick. I got news for you. You will. It's guaranteed. 
that shouldn't stop us from community. It shouldn't stop us from believing and following. It shouldn't stop us from doing what it is that God has asked us to do. It should embolden us to continue to do this and to push in even harder. So I would encourage you over this next year, I would, I would ask you to, 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 to wrestle with the question, what child is this to you? Is this child a, a threat to your life? Is this child a promise of peace? Is this child the fulfillment of a promise, pro- prophecy and a promise? Is this child hope for the future? Or this, is this child an impediment to your life? Something that you want the benefit of, but you don't want the responsibility of. Which is it? Because God wants you to believe and to follow. Both. Not one. Let's try to do something different this year. And spend the year talking to people about this gift. About this promise. About the word made flesh. See what happens. This whole year is about the gospel. How many people are you going to bring to church to try to hear that gospel? 